Optimism Well, uh, that, it, we're interrupting the intro already. By God, uh, this is why uh, Steve is usually here to to keep Hello. these animals in line. Uh but he's not here. You're, you're left with me, Adam Myros, uh, the more boring host of the Optimism Vaccine podcast. And uh, fortunately, I'm I'm joined by a full brigade of of lunatics. And uh, let's introduce them. I have with me uh, Jack Eason. I hope when we're considering optimism vaccine bonuses, uh, it will be noted that I was very polite and did not interrupt anything. Uh, I edited that last podcast. Boy, those poor guests, you were just stomping all over them the whole damn time. So much to talk about with Barbarian Brothers, though. <laughs> uh, also joining us, we have Jake Tropila, the interrupting son of a bitch. Interrupter number two. Thank you very much. Uh, well, at least Jack did interrupt me, the esteemed host. He gets a, a merit badge this, this week. We also have, returning from uh, his occasional hiatus as, as he travels uh, throughout the uh, southern United States, uh, one Sean Glynis. Hi, Myros. How are you? I'm doing all right. That's all awesome. Yes, I'm really excited to, to uh, discuss uh, the filmography of R. Kelly. Uh, yes, we, we have indeed been trapped in the closet this week. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're talking about uh, the other R. Kelly. Uh, you may have forgotten him. He hasn't made a film in a dozen years, but, uh, Richard Kelly is back in the zeitgeist as, uh, some sort of, you people would know this is some boutique label is releasing the, uh, lost can cut of his, his seminal film, Southland Tales. Uh, so that is why we're discussing this, uh, I assume? Yes. There's also Donnie Darko in 4K, you know? Yeah, and I, I think it started as definitely spurred on by the Southland Tales Arrow set but um, and the can cut. But I, I think, at least personally speaking, I'd been kind of interested in eventually revisiting Donnie Darko because I think all of us, well, maybe... I don't know. Yeah, I think all of us kind of saw it around like, oh gosh, I, I think I saw it like maybe 17 years ago or something, like close to two decades at a, um, an age where a lot of people saw it and had then like, uh, you know, divested emotionally from it since and then had seen people sort of uh, discover it now at a much different time and say, you know what, this is all right. Um which is interesting considering my experience with it this week. But that, that's personally, I think, uh, where it came from. Yeah, Donnie Darko was was a big hot topic film back when we were uh, recent high school graduates, I would say, the bulk of us. Well, Jake is a younger man, but uh, for us, this was this was kind of in that sort of tier of college dude bro cinema. But it was yeah. never one I particularly gelled with personally, and... Uh, and that was my experience with Kelly as a whole. But uh, this was interesting to revisit. Uh, Jake, I'm going to go to you because what is your experience with Donnie Darko as someone who is, who is significantly younger than us? Yeah, well, this film was uh, 
very uh, i knew i was uh I, I almost said i was a freshman but that was way incorrect i was in the sixth grade when donnie darko was released i was 11 years old and um it was a lot of uh, a lot of film friends of mine it was a lot of their favorite film uh people were obsessed with uh, frank the bunny and they would draw him on their notepads and such um, but I saw it a couple years after that, and uh, back then I thought, uh, oh, this is a pretty pretty fun, pretty cool movie. It's got a great soundtrack. It's got teen angst. I'm a teenager, so it's kind of speaking to me, and then I kind of kind of just didn't really keep up with it, I guess you could say. Like I, I kind of jumped on the uh, overrated train and just kind of uh, ignored Donnie Darko for many years. Um and that probably was compounded by the fact that I saw Southland Tales not too long after it, and I hated that. Uh, and then I didn't. And I saw the box too, and I thought this, that was just kind of middling, so I just kind of left behind Richard Kelly. And then revisiting Donnie Darko, I thought, uh, oh, this is a uh, you know, it has a lot of uh, first film um, stuff that it kinks that it needs to work out. I mean, you know, I think Kelly is very much self conscious in his style, and he's he's very showy with his swooping takes and soundtrack cuts. But, uh, you know, I still think it's, uh, it's a film that's impossible to divorce from the, uh, the era that it's from and the zeitgeist that it helped create in the film world. And I, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it this time around. Uh, now I should mention that I, my enjoyment mostly is for the uh, theatrical cut as I did also watch the director's cut, which is, uh, noticeably inferior to the uh, theatrical cut. But uh, yeah, that's my uh, that's my Donnie Darko. I think self conscious and style is not necessarily a bad thing, um, and that wasn't a stumbling block. I found like I mean, you know, uh, hopefully most of the best formalists are self conscious in their style. But uh, I found when I tried to rewatch the theatrical cut this week, um, which I only got an hour through, and then just found myself not caring at all about it and being like. I can see why people enjoy this and I can also see why I don't want to continue watching this um, just as something that wasn't on my wavelength. And I think the, the stumbling blocks were like the script, which I think is quite annoying at times. Yeah. Um, like I've heard people sort of talk about how it's just a, a movie with good vibes, which is, you know, possible at times, but when you're it kind of has this like sort of grading conversations and um i think gyllenhaal is still trying to to figure out himself as an actor um that that really kind of created those blocks for me i would agree entirely i i did not revisit the theatrical cut because considering the impetus for this was to look at this can cut i i was like well you know a, none of these movies are especially short, and B, I, I just kind of want to look at his cuts of these films that, that got meddled with, supposedly. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to look at Richard Kelly's distilled vision for these films. And uh, that was probably a mistake, because, I, I again, <laughs> my familiarity with the theatrical cut is is two decades in the past at this point, and... Uh, I I don't remember a ton about it. It was never an impactful film for me, particularly. I, I think that musically, perhaps was was kind of where it made a, a bigger impact on young me than than anything. Really. Mad World, sir. Yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, there was obviously it brought uh, fucking 
Gary Jewel to the the forefront <laughs> of the world, unfortunately. But uh, at least it did get uh, Tears for Fears some some shine out of that. But yeah, that's this is probably where my love for Tears for Fears stems from because I just started checking out their music after I heard Head Over Heels, which is a killer track. It is. It also both cuts have the Echo and the Bunnyman uh, Killing Moon track, which j- is just great one as well. has dash. Well, no, they both do. It's just in a different position of the director's Oh, that's right. Cut. I forgot he moves it for the director's cut. I don't know why he moved it from the, from the start of the theatrical because he wanted to put in an NXS. Uh, yeah, nah, why not? Yeah, the soundtrack is definitely, I think, a standout for this. I was going to say, um, I, I, for me, again, funnily enough, Donnie Darko, I mean, I didn't see it in theaters, but I saw it, I think, when it first about hit DVD, so pretty close to when it first came out. And... um. Again, not like I, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like a particularly impactful viewing, and I never returned to it again until this week. But Kelly did strike me as kind of like there was this, this clique of what I I kind of call puzzle box directors that were kind of rising at this point from the mm-hmm. early, late nineties through this, and you really had like Christopher Nolan, uh, Brian Singer a little bit, but really on just with the Usual Suspects, he wasn't really within that mode but then you had darren aronofsky and richard kelly and they're like all these basically these white m knight would you would you throw him into M. Knight? i think is kind of like the exception because he's not and i think one of the interesting things about m knight Shyamalan is that he's more visibly not concerned with the apparatus that he creates whereas i I think what distinguishes the other guys as puzzle box directors is that they're they're not just concerned with a reveal they're concerned with the workings of their own apparatus to a point that often can leave you just like like eyes rolling back just like sighing at the ceiling sort of saps the fun out of it It, yeah i mean and the donnie darker director's cut i think is is absolutely richard kelly being allowed to revel in his own mechanics and it's ironically the least interesting thing in donnie darko which is a movie i very much enjoyed revisiting the theatrical cut i i really enjoyed it it's it's a really entertaining film because it's kind of like i look at it like you know the great there's a lot of good films about teenage life adolescent angst and, and concerns but the majority of them are films that have come from adults looking back with kind of a hard-worn wisdom or perspective you know things like welcome to the dollhouse the 400 blows or peppermint soda or even something like Bunuel's los alvedados you know is it which is a, a much more extreme vision of youth but it still has a kind of a political perspective on adolescence as a kind of a social state um Donnie Darko isn't that. Donnie Darko is absolutely the dumb teenager making the dumb teenage movie. Well, you know, and, I, and that sounds mean to say, but I think there's an energy to it that, like, it's very much in the teenage mindset that it's depicting. It's not. Right, yeah. It doesn't feel like an adult looking back. And Richard Kelly was what 25 when he made this. He was in his early 20s, presumably, when he wrote the script and started working on it. Probably he could well have been working on this since he was a teenager. I wouldn't be surprised if elements of this made its way through um but he he's you know i say going back just kind of that puzzle box director and i think it's interesting that he is a guy who becomes very clearly obsessed with patterns and constructs and uh kind of like broad scale systems um and his donnie tarko strips out a lot of that and then it gets he gets the opportunity to put it back in and really it undercuts the film uh, it, which is really interesting. I'm glad you you sort of framed him, at least Donnie Darko, as this puzzle box director because watching his next two movies, 
which I don't know if we're ready to get to those yet. I mean, it's very much the opposite of that clean and tidy machine. Um, I mean, still interested in systems and, and what have you and political consciousness, but it's very much about throwing shit at the wall. Yeah, I think he's, he gets bigger in the system, but there's still, I mean, Southland is still a film that's obsessed with interlinking parts. It's just the idea that all of the parts yeah. are unaware well, of how the it's not a puzzle interlink. box. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think he probably gets back to that a bit in the box, but I, I also think that the box kind of reads as him trying to recapture something to that he got fucking smacked on the nose by some studio head because Southland Tales <laughs> was was such a fiasco. I mean, I'm not talking about content, honestly. I'm just talking about the perception and the performance of the film that that he kind of went chasing the Donnie Darko thing again with his third film. Sure, Southland, like the release of Southland was so problematic that, I mean, it was a film set in the distant future and it almost got released in the past of the film's own distant future or like <laughs> near future because it was it was originally, I think, set to be released near 2006 or so or 2007 and it was set in 2008 and it ended up coming out just a little before 2008. Like it was delayed because they had to recut uh, the con cut. His original cut was over two and a half hours long and just famously one of like the worst reviewed films ever to premiere at Cannes. Oh, you just scalding takes. People, yeah. people were mad. Which we it. always know is a great barometer. Yeah, um, yeah. For it is interesting to consider that this film almost did not release in the Bush era, considering it is the single most Bush <laughs> era fucking thing you've ever yeah. seen yeah. in your life. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't want to necessarily abandon Darko just yet. I, I think it is interesting to look at the difference between the cuts. And I, I'm kind of speaking yeah. from my memory of the original, which is certainly muddled. But it, it the whole purpose of the film was that it captured this sort of teen angst it, on a very basic level. Like, oh, society is corrupt and everyone's buying into all this bullshit, but not me. But it it's... Got this troubled protagonist, and the recut is insane because Darko goes from being a, a mentally disturbed individual to like a, a superhero, literally a messiah, basically. Like, I mean, yeah, it's conflates. The, the original theatrical cut is kind of like, like you say, it's about like a teenager who is, I guess, I mean, you can interpret it, but it's a teenager who has mental issues. But we could. We can put weight on or off of what is or isn't mental issues because it's a film. It blurs the line of reality. Everything in a film is a lie, as famously a lot of French people like to talk about while smoking and looking cool. Um, you know, it, it's not a film about mental illness. It's really about a teenager gaining awareness of a world that is not functioning correctly, which is our world and our society. There's hypocrisy and there's conspiracies and there's just mistakes and errors. And we've all just kind of part of being an adult, an adult is just kind of like acknowledging some things don't make sense and just keep going anyway and feeding it on to the next generation. Yeah, Well, it is a movie that very directly evokes Columbine imagery, I would say. And to then make it this thing where it's just like, no, no, actually... What's happening here is yes, he's he's the Messiah. He's here to save yeah. everyone, and it, it's just so numbskull to it's, me. Like it, it's yeah, misguided. It's, it's a, a problem, and also, I mean, frankly, um, 
you know, and uh, like, again, I'm not, it's not something I particularly harp on for a movie. I don't, you know, because uh, movies are not moral or immoral. You know, that's a discussion that some people love to have about, you know, is the movie right to do this or to present this? But I mean, it is a little bit awkward in a movie, not saying it's immoral, but it's certainly awkward in a movie about a disturbed kid who eventually ends up dying to glorify the teenager's death as being like a necessary sacrifice to save the world considering teenage suicidal ideation often assumes narratives very close to that as you know not exactly that you know they're the chosen one but that you know their death will be you know will teach people a lesson or will make people sad and then they'll you know they'll mean something or you know i mean there's all kinds of things like that it's very awkward to flip the and and this is in the theatrical cut as well frankly it's a little awkward that you know donnie ends up dying and it's uh quote-unquote a good thing or or kind of a predestined thing something that had to happen that you know restores a correctitude you know again i'm not saying that it's wrong but it's it is a troublesome piece within the film i think um one, one of those things is just kind of like it's struggling with and then obviously richard kelly in the in the director's cut decided it's not a problem because it's actually part of a very good time machine. Like, there's actually a time crisis happening. <laughs> I'm going to tell you all about it. And he had to do it because time travel is real, which is an insane thing to make a film about. And it's kind of amazing. I mean, the Donnie Darko director's cut is not that much longer than the, the theatrical cut. It's not hugely different scene to scene. It's not, you know, it does a couple of things, but it just does a couple of things. And they absolutely just hijack the film they destroy it like i i I might be from all of us the person most who is most kind of enjoyed the theatrical cut the director's cut it's awful it is so difficult to sit through so i'm impressed not only like he nearly got away with it and he went back and and fixed his film and and broke it i'm glad that uh I'm glad that when I after I bought the uh, DVD of the theat- or the director's cut when it came out the, um, that I never opened it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is impressive. Even getting beyond how it gets a little uh, morally slippery in in the director's cut, the way that it frames the events. Uh, even if we disregard that, the the major sin of the cut is that it is boring as hell like it it becomes almost impossible to engage with it it seems like it takes everything that people connected with in the original cut and strips it away and turns it into this like science text that is and i mean pseudo science text it's total horseshit yeah it's it's the problem with the puzzle box director and i think it's you know sean talked about the dialogue being grating at times in this i think it's something that kelly revisits throughout all of his three major feature films is he can't resist trying to explain something and he feels everything can be explained and that's where his stuff disconnects you know he's like anti-david lynch you know he's like look look, let me break it down let me tell you why all of this happened the way it did and it's kind of like it was better in the theatrical cut of donnie darko to not tell us specifically we had enough yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I uh, also I I really dislike Gyllenhaal's performance in this fucking movie too. Me? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I'm I'm mixed. I think he's when he's a teen, like just cursing at his sister at the dinner table, I think he's fine. I think that stuff's good. But when he like 
when he slips into like evil voice mode and he's talking about like Frank the Rabbit to a psychiatrist, uh, I that stuff I don't think is good. To, to Gyllenhaal's credit, he's acknowledged he had no idea what the film was about when he was way, when he was making it. So and that and that well, honestly, I think that's pretty routine. That, well, that's I mean I think that's routine, but also I think it's ironic that Kelly, the man who cannot help but explain everything in his movies and over explain it, left his cast clueless. Wallace Shawn also acknowledged he had no idea what Southland Tales is about. Um, it's just kind of funny that Richard Kelly seems to be over-communicating to the audience and then leaving his actors completely in the dark. And maybe maybe it would have helped uh, Jake to get a couple of pointers along the way. But, um, you know, I wasn't too bothered by his performance, but it's sort of like... I don't, You know, it's, it's interesting, Donnie Darko now, looking back on it, it's like just one of those focal points for, like, famous people... Uh, Kelly's casts are fascinating, mm-hmm. just generally. Um, yeah. You know, Donnie Dark was like <laughs> baby Seth Rogen and Jake Gyllenhaal and Maggie Gyllenhaal and Patrick Swayze was resurrected. His career really wasn't anywhere at the time and he kind of came back into public focus from this. Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore, that's right. And the guy from Eeyore, Noah Weil, is that his name, I think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know. John Carter. So, you know, yeah, like the the, the cast is like layered, uh, multiple layers of kind of like up-and-comers and established and people who were established and were on the downward arc that kind of came back in with, with Donnie Darko. It's kind of an interesting effect. Um, but I, ironically, I guess in Donnie Darko, a lot of them are left kind of like... Uh, they don't have a lot to do they kind of Donnie Darko feels a little piecemeal to me that people just kind of wander in to give the explanation required to impart the necessary meaning to the next scene you know that Drew Barrymore is just there yeah I don't care about I don't care for her performance either honestly I I just I don't know she doesn't get to like she's kind of like the the teacher who's kind of like not exactly cool but like who actually understands the value of what she's teaching and she runs up against the school board but it's kind of just a subplot it's not really a, a you know I, yeah i don't think i don't think it translates yeah, or maybe it's not even her performance maybe it's less her performance and more just like what kelly gave her to say but um i mean i think that this is stop me if you want to keep talking about this movie but uh I mean, that's a great entry point to Southland Tales is just like Southland Tales, his second movie in what, 2004, um, is only Southland Tales because of this incredibly interesting cast that yeah. has like um, a lot of a lot of comedy stars of yesteryear or like um, comedy stars that are very specifically known for like different SNL eras. And then you also have these like huge stars like Justin Timberlake and Mandy Moore and The Rock that are especially The Rock and someone like as big as just Timberlake where like there is something not only is he capturing like trying to capture a certain time but also these people that are like whose profession is their persona um and it's interesting if we're thinking about Donnie Darko as something that sort of created a certain uh part of a zeitgeist it seems like Southland Tales is different in that it's trying to capture a zeitgeist within a movie. It's trying to replicate what it feels like to be in a, the zeitgeist over like two and a half hours. Yeah, I think, and I think it does it somewhat successfully. I mean, the the casting here is kind oh, of yeah, is, is really great. you know kind of a vital snapshot. Whether or not you like the film or not, it's sort of like every single scene brings someone back in that you're kind of curious to what they were doing in in this you know at this period in their career 
Um, and it's strange how people have uh, like The Rock, who I think this is the first film where he was just credited as Dwayne Johnson without The Rock. Um, you know, he's gone on obviously to superstardom for movies, but here he was really, he was untested. He was just a brawny wrestler, you know, and he, did he have acting chops? Could he actually be an actor? And then you have people like Justin Timberlake and Mandy Moore, who were huge, mostly for music, and have since uh, Mandy Moore certainly, uh, in my perception, have kind of slipped off, you know, into I don't know what she's doing. Justin Timberlake, and either. Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, Justin Timberlake is still Who is famous. Buffy? Like, yeah, yeah, a few of them are still, they're still knocking around, but they're certainly not, you know, and you have, peak of their power. Uh, you have Stifler. Oh, like, yeah. you have, like, like these big icons like <laughs> of this time. Uh, very representative of one thing. Very true, very true. And I, it is, it is such a strange film. It, it, it sort of stratifies between these groups. And the groups are all, you know, we have one group that is these sort of icons and these beautiful people. And then we have the group that is more of the <laughs> SNL graduates who, who's kind of not really having a career. And then we have the third group, which is this, I, I don't even know what the fuck they are. They they the harbingers of some new energy form, and they're all played by these very specific uh, types of character actors. You've got your Wallace Shawns, you've got your Zelda Rubensteins, uh, and who's the third guy? Uh, fucking Booger. Booger. Like Zelda Rubenstein is 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 absolutely like that that's Swayze casting you know kind of bringing her back into the fold as a known genre figure but in somewhat although she, honestly she's pretty much just playing poltergeist woman still she just says well, everyone things. is playing to type and, and especially in that in that character actor group you know you know uh, Curtis Armstrong yeah. is, is booger by the way yeah those right like it's not like Wallace Shawn is stepping outside of his lane here <laughs> He's he's essentially just yeah. shouting inconceivable, but but yeah. and using a different word. It is, it is very funny though that in this instance, Wallace Shawn, who is actually a known leftist activist, uh, actually gets to play. Uh, secretly, it turns out, is actually you know gets to play a, a Marxist conspiracy guy, guy trying to launch a, you know a, a genuine leftist communist rebellion. I thought that was kind of an entertaining one. Because it's not necessarily... Who would have thought that 16 years later he would play Mort Rifkin? <laughs> I, honestly, yeah, I think I think he'll just show up for whatever. <laughs> like, that's really... No, that's, just, that's just, just kind of what he's all about, you know? He's one guy who won't cancel Woody <laughs> Allen. He's just, just too kind. Uh, um, yeah, I, 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 uh, I knew... So, this movie was kind of... Um, had gained a lot of notoriety in very small circles. I, so I want to talk about something outside of the movie as well to kind of like pick your guys' brain. Cause I think we're all coming at this with different opinion or like all three of these films. I think none of us have, I don't think there's a consensus. Um, and it's really interesting. So that, that is, it, it begs to be talked about is that, um, there has been like a group of people that have rediscovered and like reclaimed Southland Tales, especially the can cut. Um, uh, the same way that some people have come back, come to, to like Donnie Darko, but that was never like panned or anything like that. But Southland Tales are like this trashed thing. Um, and you know, it happened just like, you know, Twin, po Twin Peaks, uh, Firewalk with me, that type of thing. But, um, uh, it's interesting. I get this sense that, 
And I mean, this kind of even came up maybe when we discussed even talking about uh, R. Kelly um, is that there's sort of this groan that happened. And I guess like Jake, you saw this before and you hated it. Yeah. Um, like I just kind of want to try and pin down what it is about like, I feel like I at like, like at this point in my life, um, tr- like, and I don't really have to try anymore. It seems like pretty like natural to me to try to abstain from, or I just don't care about what critics are saying now, but I feel like especially, uh, maybe as you're going to like, like undergrad or in high school or whatever, you're sort of like attuned to this critical consensus. And it, it's just like, it feels so easy to glom onto it and replicate that or go into a movie like this that is like so wild and just outright dismiss it and just be like, oh yeah, it's trash, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we've done it um, with a lot of stuff. But, uh, and I feel like there's even like an annoyance when people go to try and even explore these films. Like it almost seems like it comes out of like some insecurity, like, oh gosh, I have to rethink about this thing that I already decided is bad possibly uh because i care about what these people think um and that is interesting to me um but i i don't know maybe it's just because i know that like there are like very few critics that are working that are actually good now and when you're a kid you're just trying to like like you just look up to critics like naturally for a lot of people at least but i don't know do people have thoughts about that or like kind of uh experiences with how it relates to southland tales because sorry, it would be because when I watch these films now, like especially this in the box, and it excite even even if like regardless of whether I like them or not, like to a T, it's exciting to watch somebody trying to do something weird, and it makes me so upset, honestly, to think about critics just like dismissing something that is so wild and interesting, and that they'd rather have what you're talking about, Jack, with like puzzle box things where everything makes sense and that just seems so boring yeah i i you know i mean i kind of bypassed that because i just um i don't know if i i never i guess i never really paid much attention to critics just because i was just not a wired to that i was mostly watching stuff that wasn't really getting reflected by you know i kind of came into movies through like asian exploitation stuff which was not exactly the stuff that was lighting up the the critics radars and then just spread out from there Mm -hmm. but um yeah, it's. I think you're definitely right that Southland, it's not a film I really had any opinion on because I'd never seen it. I watched it twice this week. I watched both cuts, which I don't recommend. Uh, just <laughs> I liked the film, but I don't recommend watching it twice in the same week. That's unnecessary. But um, <laughs> it is one of those films that um, absolutely go... It, it, goes big it's it's a huge sophomore effort it's it's kind of like the you know it really does feel like a kind of a richard kelly just going here's me you know you liked donnie darko but that was you know kind of like i was held back i was in a low budget this is me this is richard kelly and the world went fuck off richard kelly (laughs) and that was the end of that Mm -hmm. um but looking back on it you know I, i i admire that he did that you know he he Certainly, Southland Tales is a hugely distinctive work. Um, what, what would I compare it to? I mean, it's like shortcuts, but the ridiculous yeah. version of shortcuts. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's you, Pinchon it's, does shortcuts. It's 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 admirable. I I would say it's not. Um, 
like it's a movie that I think it it brings all of Kelly's weaknesses to the forefront as much as his strengths, and in a lot of ways, I think they overlap in curious ways. Um, mm-hmm. what I what I really enjoyed about Southland watching it first, and I watched the theatrical cut first. Um, so my order this week is I watched the theatrical cut, then I read the three uh, prequel comic books, which. Richard Kelly wrote three. Did he, he write those? He, he yeah, did. Okay. He authored them, yeah. Because if you watch Southland Tales, uh, there's an intertitle that opens that says Episode 4, just like Star Wars did. Right. Um, you know, the recipe for success. Everyone loved Star Wars. It built a huge universe. So obviously Southland, this was it was destined to be. So he wrote three prequels that were the, the first three chapters that would lead into this movie in an attempt, I think, to just uh, diffuse the fact that he was unloading so much information on an audience that the comic books were a way to lead people in but then ironically the movie mostly unloads the same information on everyone again at both cuts and then the con cut which is the longest cut which was his original version um which certainly i think plays most cleanly i'm a little undecided on which version but i prefer though because i i think one of the things i really enjoy just watching the theatrical cut blind going in is that like frankly the confusion and the the way that things kind of connect but don't connect meaningfully like and frankly i don't think mm-hmm. southland tales is a meaningful film in its narrative it's it's very it's very much richard kelly had a bunch of very specific ideas about post 911 america and technology and how political factions would break down and a few of them became oddly prophetic such as a porn star becoming a kind of a you know a major actor in politics you know uh you know the whole stormy daniels donald trump thing obviously came to pass i mean in a way almost the ridiculousness of of southland tales has been dwarfed by the ridiculousness of the trump administration which effectively rendered satire null and void you can't satirize something that is so utterly broken um so, you know, but it's kind of interesting to watch it and the the original theatrical cut and just kind of go like, all of this connects in ways that Richard Kelly kind of tells you they connect, but it, it doesn't really, there's no meaningful larger picture. It's not even a film about coincidence or happenstance. It's again, very specifically right. about the end of the world. So it's kind of like a very bizarre construct but it's it's very enjoyable but to me i really enjoy the film because it is just sort of like the it just is wonderful it's it's honestly it's like a shaggy dog story also very it's, funny it, it has some really funny moments but it's kind of like to me it's it's like you're sitting at a bar and someone's telling you a story and you're kind of like two drinks deep and you're having a good time like it's it's just sort of the, the telling of it is messy and wild and a little bit uncontrolled and it focuses in on stupid shit and it forgets important shit and then he wheels back because he remembers he forgot to tell you something and you know by all accounts for you know for the critics and the establishment and the idea that if movie should have a story that it tells in a in a sensible way it's a bad movie there's you know it doesn't surprise me people rejected this but honestly, there's enough fucking stories out there. There's enough movies that tell you things. How about a movie that just kind of like moves in this weird aberration? Like, absolutely, we need more of this. I think it's more interesting. It's more, uh, you know, I'm not going to say again that Richard Kelly's like personally affecting or anything, but like just more of directors doing strange things, <laughs> given the room to make yeah, mis- maybe mistakes. Sure. I think the problem he runs into is that this is not an independent film you know like this is i suppose what it most reminds me of is probably something like buckaroo bonsai which is also an incomprehensible mess that is carried by its cast 
and it has found its way to cult status over the decades. And it's the sort of film you would see come out more in the 80s, but this is a this had a, a weight of expectations that makes me wonder how on earth he ever got this script approved because it is yeah, I mean not like Dottie Duncan yeah. was a tremendous financial success theatrically, but it, it had already rapidly achieved this sort of cult status through if, if video I remember rental. correctly yeah if i remember correctly like donnie darko's path um <clears throat> was i mean originally it was released in not much notice in the u.s and yes. it was released then in the, it was released in europe and in europe it picked up a lot more positive mm-hmm. critical notice and a lot more just kind of engagement and then they used that to re-release it back into the u.s and that was where it really started to gain steam so it was like Richard Kelly, it feels has never his stuff has never taken the straightforward path. Well, there's a lot of speculation that the uh, U.S. release was was affected substantially by 9/11 because it was one of the early. It was like directly after 9/11 and involved plane crash imagery, and if you will, like it, it was it had an affected release. We'll say here initially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and that that makes perfect sense. Absolutely, I'm sure. Quite probably that is uh, after the wake of nine eleven, people didn't want to feel about a, a plane engine mysteriously falling on a suburban neighborhood. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know, Southland feels like the attempt to, you know, the idea that hey, Donnie Darko had a difficult path to success, so it's kind of like they preloaded this with the comic books, which are the movie, multiple chapters, lots of actors. Like this feels to me like something that maybe there could have been a Southland Tales universe. I think I would not be surprised that was discussed in meetings as a possibility. Right. Yeah. And yeah. obviously it didn't, did not work, but they put a lot of work in. I think that was maybe part of the mindset that did get it to fruition was the idea that if this hits, there's a lot of stuff we could do with it. I feel like there was some reservation going in because it's, to me, the comics are not comics. I don't think they're comics at all. Like they don't speak the they're language adverts. of comics. They're fucking storyboards. These are storyboards. Is it just words on a page? These are storyboards that he was not allowed to make. You know, they they said you're, you're not oh, going to film see. fucking six hours of this shit. I mean, I totally. I kind of and and Jake, it sounded like maybe you were going to say something because especially since like you have a different experience. I yeah, I have a lot of things to say. Um, this was the the most interesting um aspect of this uh podcast we're doing was revisiting Southland Tales. Um, I saw this. Uh, when it became available on DVD in 2008 for the first time. And I knew it had received the critical lashings that it got, but I remember also being a fan of Donnie Darko at the time. And I was, I was like ready to go into it to try to like, like it and enjoy it. But uh, I just, at the time, 18 year old me could not engage with the film because the dialogue, it's, it's very dense. And a lot of it is either like scientific techno babble or just these bizarre non sequiturs. Uh, that the characters are uh, like saying to each other and it, it was I felt it was overlong and I, I just couldn't really find much to enjoy it so uh, it just was just a lot of nonsense to me back then and I, I kind of just wrote it off as as you know as the critics at can did and then to go back what Sean was discussing about how uh, my I think definitely my my viewership has changed where I'm not somebody who wants to necessarily align myself with a consensus I want to see something that thinks outside mm-hmm. the box, so to speak. 
And um, so I found you my... You mean like Southland Tales and Donnie Darko? And, yeah, which, <laughs> which were both outside of the box of uh, Richard Kelly's that career. Um, <laughs> so uh, re-watching Southland Tales, I watched the can cut first. I saw it two nights ago, and I found myself like actively engaged and enjoying a lot of it. Um, I'm not quite ready to jump on board the forgotten masterpiece train that so many are. I think it's still a heavily compromised film. Maybe, you know, I, I, I like my preferred cut of the Donnie Darko is the theatrical cuts. Maybe maybe unfiltered Kelly is just never going to be my thing. But um, I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of strong stuff in here. I think like we've discussed the music in Donnie Darko is great. The music selections in this is great. Uh, Moby composed the score. It's excellent. There's the great use of the Pixie song. Uh, there's the Moby dance number at the end. Um, I think performances are are generally really good all around. Um, uh, but uh, I, yeah, and then I watched the theatrical cut last night, and I I kind of felt even though this was the cut that uh, Kelly had to produce a year after it was you know received poorly at Cannes, and it, it's you know twenty minutes shorter. Um, I, it's definitely feels like a compromised vision because uh, he like even inserts like snippets of the comic book in like the intro and. Uh, I, I wish that the film did not have Justin Timberlake's voiceover uh, because it's while it feels like it's necessary to explain a lot of what's going on, it's really just kind of hits you over the head and how omniprescent it is. But um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I have I have more admiration for uh, Southland Tales now than I do 13 mm. years ago. Uh, and I see why people will love it and embrace it. And I think, you know, this, these are the kind yeah. of films that I I agree should be made more. And it's not much that like I, you know, we, we're joining the consensus of like, oh, this film is trash on Rotten Tomatoes, so it should be bad. I think the problem nowadays is that a lot of films are overpraised, but they're just a lot of studio garbage and like the MCU and stuff. And people are like, give it right. that 90%. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to see those fucking movies again. I want to see, I want to see right. more films like this. So yeah, this, this was yeah. def. I was, I was dreading going into Southland Tales, but this was actually really rewarding. Uh, for me so i'm 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 glad we've done this i'm glad and may, maybe um and maybe a bit of introspection uh into my own feelings on something like under the silver lake which we discussed i think back then not i mean we don't have to get into that but as something that is somewhat similar yeah and that i just thought that was really bad and grating but i mean there is i think now that i've gotten some distance from it like uh there is a case that, you know, people should be able to make movies like that where they're trying to figure stuff out and do weird things. Um, I mean, yeah. Uh, but I, I I don't know. I just had a lot of fun. Like, I mean, I'm only like an hour removed from my, my first watch of, of Southland Tales. But I um, and I, I don't have any sort of like great parsing of it. And there's just so much to take in that I, yeah, I found it really exciting. And also just like really impressive the way that he is able to just like so dexterously switch between moods and genres within it. it it's um it captured captured my uh sensibility for sure i think one of the reasons why people had a lot of difficulty connecting with this film is and again i think under the silver lakes a good touchstone too because it's doing the same thing these are both films that are very heavily riffing on Thomas Pynchon. And when you're making a movie following Donnie Darko, that is your audience is, you know, 20, 
They don't know who the fuck Thomas Pinchon is. They don't know what the hell you're doing <laughs> with this. That's it's just a tough fucking ask for to jump from one thing to the next and expect your audience to come with you because we, even yeah. when I saw this in my mid twenties, I had never read a Pinchon book. I didn't know what the hell that was, and. and it was very right. clear to me now, just looking at like the names of all the characters and everything like that, and, and the way it's structured. I'm like, oh, he's he's trying to do pinch on. Yeah, weird characters just yeah. popping out of nowhere. Yeah, it flits back. I mean, I, I think again and again, a sofa more effort from a director, P.T. Anderson's Boogie Nights. Um, you know, trying to expand out into a world, and of course, Anderson would later make his own pinch on adaptation, um, which. The name now suddenly escapes me. Oh, walking Inherent Phoenix. Vice. What? Inherent <laughs> Vice. So for some reason, I was just coming up with immaterial something. I was like, I, that's not. Did you say title. Walking Phoenix? <laughs> oh, with Walking Phoenix. Yeah. Did you say Booby Nights? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's that's the film, isn't it? I think it's a, it's a triple X parody, I believe. Um, <laughs> but uh, what what my, kind of my final take? Like what I think my my overall kind of thesis of of what Southland Tales is. Um, kind of building up what Sean says is like it's kind of a movie that tries to capture a zeitgeist and I think part of that probably not exactly what Kelly intended is you know we talk about how we like directors to be messier and like it would be great if more directors got that opportunity what, what strikes me watching the cinemas of Rich, the, the films of Richard Kelly is that it's very much it's like a gifted white guy cinema like Richard Kelly is very clearly a like middle class maybe upper middle class white guy who has, I think, throughout his life been told he's very smart um, and certainly feels he's quite intelligent. Uh, I don't mean this as an insult to him. It's just very much the feeling I get from his cinema. And we've moved out to, you know, now we're trying to... The, the big thing in cinema is to kind of lift up not white guy voices anyone else. But they're not being allowed to be messy mostly, which is unfortunate. So... Um, it, but kind of moving back, it's interesting to me that Southland Tales, part of it is, I think, his whiteness and middle classness and his kind of maybe not great understanding of counter-revolutionary politics or of poverty or of legitimate uh, kind of destitute, you know, all the things that would come around from post 9-11 as, as the, the full weight of the US federal government kind of pivoted onto like is there even a muslim in this film i'm trying to like I, you know it's not there's not even like in fact that the the nuclear bomb attacks in the film they say they don't know who did them there's they suddenly create kind of a mystery enemy it kind of it, it moves you know moves it out of the real world realm but i think his own disconnection from the material actually is a really great asset in capturing as like making the film work as kind of a zeitgeist piece um it becomes this kind of removed, kind of semi-ironic, kind of problematic text of like massive government uh, urgency and movement and agitation, none of which seems to be properly predicated or directed on anything noticeable. And then it, it all transpires to me, I think, in that fabulous mu uh, music number, uh, Justin Timberlake miming along to the killers, um all these things that I've done, which is like the quintessential song of the early 2000s. Christ, if I never hear it again, it would be... I remember hearing that song for the first time. I was like, oh, that's pretty good. You know, second time, okay. And then like the 8,000th time, it's like, I never need to hear anything by the killers ever again. 
Um, but it's a really great sequence, and it's, it's almost Lebowski esque. Yeah, it's, um, it's got these, yeah, you know, it is. One, wonderful, just like strange gathering of, of details. Of, and it's it's basically Justin Timberlake in army uniform with dog tags and facial scarring, slamming beers while and dancers handing him beers to slam, and just like wandering through a video game arcade. And if that isn't America post nine eleven America you know what is i mean that's very much like you know it brought me straight back to like there's the like a and, sadness oh yeah yeah there, there, there's I mean, a sadness to his performance there is yeah absolutely i mean it's it's unclear his it, the film doesn't really make his relationship clear to the story at all the comics do a better job of confirming that he was heinously injured in iraq but as actually it was a great friend of one of the other characters sean william scott's character I, I feel like the movies i don't remember i don't think they really make a a very clear joy. I think at some point they mentioned they were no. very good friends, and that's it. Who cares? It's like the last and line of the film. He said he, he said that it's his best friend. Yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, you guys were okay. Yeah, yeah that, sure. Yeah, why not? Doesn't land Bonded over that. Robert Frost. You know, but like who? You know, it does. It doesn't really matter at all. But yeah, I just say no. like I feel like that Kelly's remove from really from the actual issues of the day as someone who's kind of just a white guy looking on. Um, really helps, I think, feed into a film that also feels at a remove and captures that and captures that kind of idiosyncrasy between policy and effect and what America was doing, which is really trying to like lick its wounds, but also kind of stump up its badass war machine um, and creating new targets and basically kind of moving into perpetual war mode without in literally in a war against an idea, like the war against terror is like if you parse that for even a second, you realize that's an insane thing to do. And yet we're in year 20 of us now. So, you know, it's just a really <laughs> striking sequence. And I think if, if nothing else, Southland Tales stands up on that sequence alone to me as being just as incredible with the fucking killer song, just as being like this absolute kind of snap, like that should go in, in the, the Smithsonian as like, what was America like? And just put that in there. That may be the magic trick of this movie, because to call it a, a masterpiece that's been forgotten is absurd to me. This is a deeply flawed film. It is, uh, it's enjoyable. It, it is enjoyable, but it is barely held together at many points. And uh, I I think it. The the difference between Kelly and, say, P.T. Anderson, or even Lebowski is also another very Pinchon-esque film. And Inherent Vice echoes it quite a bit, uh, to its detriment at times, I would say. But um, what I would say about this is that if Kelly was brought up thinking he was smart, which I agree, he has that air about him, he's not. This is a dumb, dumb movie but that's, at, that's at many always, points. But, but that's always the way it is. It's the gifted child syndrome. Right, you know, which yeah. Brought forward like, yeah, and it's it's the school you go to tells you that you're smart, not the world at large. Absolutely. Then, you know, yeah. If you look at something like Pinchon, though, Pinchon is as dense a text as you'll ever read. It's, it's hyper-literate. And this reads like Pinchon by way of someone who's read like three fucking books. Like, it it, it is... I, I, but, but the fact that it's so goddamn stupid at times almost makes it like a perfect encapsulation of a truly idiotic era of American culture. And that, that, that kind of was, it, it's a happy accident yeah. in many ways, I feel like. I, I would agree with you. Like, like in, in any, and maybe it's come across in this podcast, all of my praise for Southland Tales is kind of, uh, 
but hedged in the fact that it is very, very dumb in a lot of ways. Very, very bluntly literal. Like you say, I mean, Christ, the way he's like, he literally the whole thing comes from like, I read a T.S. Eliot poem about the world ending. I swapped two words in the last line and I'm going to tell you that over and over again. It's just like insane. It's it's so stupid that it becomes almost admirable. You haven't even mentioned that Kevin Smith is in this movie. Only he's <laughs> only in the con cut, really. No, Same he's Janine both? Garofalo. Oh, really? He, he only he barely shows up. Like Janine Garofalo, I think is in like one shot in the theatrical because most they have their own little section of the movie. Uh, I didn't even notice him, honestly. I, uh, that's probably <laughs> he's in May. Seriously, he, he's the bearded guy. Simon he's the real Theory. Simon dude. Theory. The, the bald guy with the long wizard beard. Oh, that guy Kevin was Smith. like, oh, they couldn't get uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, so they got someone who couldn't act. But uh, he, ah. he's the he's the D and did the Dungeon the Dragons guy that confused me because when I watched the first version, because he's barely in it, they thank Dungeons and Dragons in the end credits, and I was like, why the fuck did they thank them? But it turns out in the longer original cut, there's a lo- whole conversations uh, involving Kevin Smith's character about Dungeon the Dragons. I was like, oh, cool, great. They they could have left those out, frankly, but so be it. Uh, yeah, I will say I think this highlights a ton of Kelly's weaknesses and strengths, like you guys mentioned. Uh, the voiceover stuff in the first act was driving me up a fucking wall. It thankfully calms the hell down. Uh, and I, I, no, I still no don't think he's, he's a, at all an actor's director. I think there are very uneven performances sure. throughout this film, uh, but it is carried by some truly magnetic performances. Like, I think that The Rock is fucking fantastic in this. I think Stifler's good in it, too. Stifler. So is Lovitz. Yeah, Lovitz is great. Lovitz, Lovitz has my favorite. That whole wave of mutilation scene where he's just like, dream over, and fucking guns down those two people. Yeah. I was like, this is... Okay, I'm on yeah, board for this. Anyone like yeah. me who has sat through every episode of Parks and Rec, just seeing Amy Poehler getting shot is just <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> And uh, alongside, like, the dude from The Wire. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. I, I gotta say, that's Parks. another great scene, actually. As much as I'm gonna dunk on, on her for Parks and Rec. <laughs> just talking about the, cock the size. Scene, yeah, the, the Co- scene of them, trigger. like, it's it's basically an improv. I mean, and they're known for improv, or Amy Poehler is certainly, you know, came with whatever, Second Citizens Brigade or whatever. Um, Upright, or whatever Upright Citizens, Citizens Brigade, Brigade, rather than the Second City, Citizens. the other big one. <laughs> Look, they're all stupid. It's an improv troupe. You can name it whatever you want. Just because she's a woman, it doesn't mean she's a Second Citizen. That's it's, thank you, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> but that whole that whole argument they have where they're staging a domestic uh, a domestic dispute, and it's like they talk up their improv abilities, and then they have the most awful argument the stupidest <laughs> argument and then they have a guy in another room going they're really good at improv they're it's really just a good. really great sequence there's a lot it of is. Like, we didn't mention that there's like this local crime boss played by will sassio will sasso named like oh yeah fortunio balducci he like runs the the gangsters on the santa monica pier uh, and Christopher Lambert from Highlander is oh. an arms dealer operating out of an ice oh, yeah. cream truck which it plays like is like yeah. the central like location in the ending that's one of the big uh pinchon-esque characters i feel like but um uh the yeah will sasso i was i was really looking forward to talking about um for the second time in six months uh will sasso being sort of a a a surrogate laugher um first time in Ernest goes to school oh yeah 
Well, it's weird because in the comics slash storyboard slash whatever the hell you want to call the supplemental stuff, Sasso's character is like one of the main three characters. It's like Kristen Ow and uh, oh, nice uh, the Rock's character and fucking Fortunio. And when he showed up in the intro, I'm like, is this movie like a Will Sasso vehicle? It's like, no, he's not in it at all. <laughs> okay, so uh, shall we move on to the box? Uh, we may as well move on. To the box, the the, the movie that uh, ended Richard Kelly's illustrious career, perhaps. I, I although I would think that uh, Southland Tales probably uh, effectively ended yeah. his career, and he he just kind of box was the finish. This him. was I think the, I think it's ironic that a guy who rescued various actors' careers now probably could use a, a jump start himself. <laughs> Yeah, this is when uh, Hollywood decided uh, he was, in fact, not a smart genius boy filmmaker and uh, was not allowed to make movies anymore. But uh, this is the box is like I said, I I feel like it's him trying to backtrack and go, I can make Donnie Darko again. But uh, it it's very much a Twilight really? Zone. It's a Richard Madison, right? Uh, short, yeah, short story. story. That he adapted from. Uh, Although Twilight there's no way in hell, there's no way in hell Matheson's story is as stupid as this movie or as convoluted. No fucking way. Well, no, <laughs> it seems to be the opposite of convoluted. It, it's probably like fucking five pages long. Frankly, the way it's described. Yep. The yeah, the story ends with it's like the short story ends. They push the button and then the husband dies on a business trip and they get like the money they get is the life insurance from his trip and the twist is that she never really knew her husband. And the button is pushed, like, I think in the first 30 minutes of the film. So then Kelly has to go and expand on why the button is there, who uh, Frank Langella's character is, what the purpose of all this is. So he has to he has to expand the short story, which stretches into 30 minutes into two hours long. Yeah, this and turns into like fucking phantasm kind of, but with a guy like sitting behind you explaining every single thing to you. It's. I hated this one. Honestly, I've got. I got nothing to. No positives really? about it. Oh god, this one was insufferable. It feels like M Night Shyamalan, but like oh. the like like we discussed beginning. M Night Shyamalan employs kind of twists or gimmicks, but he does so kind of in the vein of a story. And I'm I'm not as as high on Shyamalan as a lot of other people. I know he's very much been reclaimed by a. Uh, a group outside of the critics inner circle who have largely disavowed Charlemagne after like loving Sixth Sense every subsequent film was like kind of pushed down and wrong and again until he eventually became kind of a joke in the industry to some degree and started until he started making his movies independently and has kind of been pulling himself back up because you can't really argue with the box office but Charlemagne's strength I think was that he always whether you like his movies or not they're always about people and I think Kelly can't write people and this book is, or this film is absolutely like the example of that. Because I mean, Matheson is, is fundamentally, it's, it's, a, it's a morality tale. Um, you know, mm -hmm. just like, would you kill a complete stranger for financial gain? Like, it's just, it's a morality problem. And instead he turns it into an overarching interdimensional National, God experiment yeah. thing. Um, which also, I mean, it's worth, it's worth discussing. I think it's brought in, you know, uh, Richard Kelly is like, I'm wondering, is he religious? Or um, when I was watching this, Holly was talking about how he really just feels like one of those edgy ex-Christians. Yeah. Um, all his Maybe. movies are all his movies are like steeped in Christian elements to a heavy mm -hmm. degree. This one in particular, I mean, obviously is 
Cameron Diaz is Eve and she pushes the button uh, and unleashes a forbidden chain of events where everyone will suffer until they have to kill her again. The movie could be interpreted as being deeply misogynist, just <laughs> to mention. But anyhow, um, but Kelly... You know, Jack, besides the, besides the misogynist part, uh, a lot of the stuff that you're, you're describing, I can't tell if... Uh, it sounds like you're saying something negative about it, but just describing it, and so far it sounds pretty cool. Um, <laughs> if, like if I think, say, like yeah. I don't know if you're just using the tone because you know already you don't like it, but like something like taking a morality play and then making it into something inter interdimensional, like that is cool. Like I don't think that that on its face is a bad thing. No, um, I like this. Movie. Well, I mean. I Maybe, maybe maybe it wouldn't be if I felt there was any convincing element to it. Like I say, I mean, Shalaman right, is that's about different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shalaman is about people, and his films are always about people and how they interact and how they work. This movie, there's not a single credible character to me in this entire movie. The entire the way they deliberate on the problem, they the the weighting of where they deliberate on the ethical concerns is off to me they they hit the button they take too long to hit the button but not because they're discussing the actual implications of the button they're just doing some other things and then it just spirals off into this grand conspiracy which is basically hedged on elements that weren't introduced in the original problem which makes me wonder why they even discussed the problem to begin with because he's like here's three rules for the box and it's like also oh, also by the way the entire village is possessed and it's like children of the damned I was like, that's not even part of it, you know. Uh, there's a discussion of faith you could have about it because they actually disassemble the box and can find nothing inside of it. So when they hit the button, they, theoretically, you could hit the button on the understanding from a human perspective that nothing possibly could happen because there's no mechanics in the box. But religiously, from a discussion of faith, which is where I think the film is more trying to pause it, but mm -hmm. there's no discussion of that within the film. That's just sort of thrown off the end. The film, to me, is just wildly... Uh, the, uh, its resources are completely uh, misappropriated or misapplied um, to the point that by like hour two I was absolutely just bored out of my mind like there was nothing in this film that could have happened that was interesting to me and then at the end they just basically just take a dump on on the deaf blind community uh, <laughs> like literally, literally they do like literally it's like okay we have a new morality play and now you either have to kill your wife or else your kid will be deaf blind and they're like well there's nothing worse than being yeah. deaf or blind so we must break up our family by <laughs> but murdering but that feels like alright that feels like shooting fish in a barrel though Jack that's like oh wait I don't like this movie so now I'm gonna pick on that if you like the movie you probably wouldn't care uh, like that's just kind of like it's easy picking it, it's easy pickings but it's easy pickings within a film that's about human conditions that doesn't understand humans that to me like there's nothing in this that rings true ethically or morally but it's a mor but it's a morality play it's just by aliens <laughs> <laughs> um but so so myros you're coming at this kind of like jake did southland tales which is you'd seen this before or maybe jake you had seen the box before i don't know i had but yeah. you had seen yeah you had seen the box before and didn't like it correct correct yeah i i again at that point in the game i had not particularly like donnie darko was kind of a too cool for school about its popularity and thought southland tales was a massive joke so I'm sure Kauf and I gave this a rent for purposes of not giving it any fair chance whatsoever <laughs> at the time, which uh, is fine and well. But I, I, of course, walked out going, 
uh, what the hell is this? Like, uh, it, it, to me at the time, I was like, okay, yeah, this guy's watched too much David Lynch and he thinks he's a real hot shot. But that's not the vibe I got from it all at all this time. I, I thought it was really riffing on sort of 70s paranoia films. Uh, and I don't know. I thought, it, I thought it captured a mood very well for me. I, I found it consistently compelling. I uh, really like the score, which is by the Arcade Fire. Um, I, I, really? I don't know. I, I thought for what it, it is, it is. Yeah, I thought for what it was attempting to do, this sort of elaborate, extended Twilight Zone thing with a, with a dose of the conversation in there, or something like that. I was like on board for what this was doing. Honestly, no, I saw this in when it came out in theaters because I, I remember seeing the trailer and you know it had a very enticing hook and I. I was actually working at the cinema at the time, and I just thought, okay, well, you know, I have the rest of the night off. Why don't I just go watch this this thriller? And I thought it started out promising, and then it ended kind of dumb. And then that was that was basically like the last I ever watched of any Richard Kelly. And then now, uh, here we are, twelve years later, and uh, yeah, I watched it, and I actually I liked it a bit more, but I do still think it starts really, really strongly and ends kind of dumb. Uh, partly in in what Jack is referring to is the 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 whole like disfigurement subplot with Cameron Diaz's foot and how like she knows that she's lived a life in pain because her foot was crushed as a child and that she doesn't want her son to go through deaf deafness and blindness for the rest of his life which don't feel like wholly comparable things but I don't know that that just that that whole here's what's here's what's really unusual. funny about that is that apparently the parents in this movie are his parents like they're modeled on them his mom is apparently the the injury she received to her foot about being her foot being overly radiated in an x-ray machine and having to be amputated or part amputated and her his dad working in nasa designing cameras for space probes that's real so the, like Again, I, I won't restate my thing, but I just think it's super funny he made this movie about people that I don't believe a word of it, and he literally stuck his parents in it. Well, the reason why Donnie Darko is set in 1988 is because I think that's Kelly just trying to relive... That's that's his knowledge of what a teenager's life is like, and he's... I think Donnie Darko has a lot of autobiographical elements. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain he was a weird loner kid who just, like, read all the obscure books about time travel in the corner of his library at school while everyone else had a relatively normal childhood. And that's that's what he's been incorporating in his work. So I, I think, yeah, the, the you know, the, that his parents are based off of the ones in the box is, is not surprise me at all. I will say, as much as I, I do kind of enjoy this movie, I think it gets at something about consumerism more so than morality um, and, and sort of the box that capitalism puts us in. But... I I don't again. There's there's this thing of him not being an actor's director. Like I don't think Cameron Diaz sells what she needs to in this movie, and a lot of it has to do with that ropey fucking accent. Uh, but it's a Langella's minor thing, great, frankly, for maybe he is Marsden, who I despise generally, is also <laughs> quite good in this. Langella movie. gives that yeah. amazing speech about how everything's like a box if you think about it, which. <laughs> Great! I that was one of those moments in the movie where at that point where the guy's like, "What? Why? Why a box?" Langella's character built the box by the way, and it's like, "What? Why a box?" And I was like, "Oh god!" Like I, I jokingly, when the movie was on, I was like, "Everything's like a box when you think about it." And then Langella actually gives a speech about how how everything is like a box when you think about it. It's like the Earth is like a box full of people, and 
coffins or boxes you with move people in your in box them. you go to your box cars, yeah, yeah, cars are like a box with wheels and it's like oh fuck. you die in a box um, I found this movie uh, to be very sincere in what it was trying to think about and discover and sort of connecting these little pieces um, and the way it uses like national surveillance and um, the way that he uses the TV is this really interesting. So I don't even know if we mentioned that this takes place in like 1970 or something like that. But the way that he keeps using the TV is this way of like, playing with something like there's this really interesting image of like the twin towers and like a boat kind of like running into it i mean it's a perspective play but running past it but i think he cuts away right as it's like about to hit the twin towers um and like at one point we see like this house decked out in like christmas and then on the tv you see like this native american actor like in some sort of movie or something um and at another point i think we get like uh president doing a speech i can't remember i think there's something going on here in a way that feels more sincere than southland tales that is like i said kind of like m night and a lot of things that turn him off or turn people off from m night um and i had the same kind of experience of like i don't really understand exactly how this all pieces together and then he kind of tells you at the end in a way that jack was talking about um with kelly just in general but I don't know. I, I enjoyed the ride and I, and, and I was kind of just sucked in by, um, again, watching somebody just throw shit at the wall and try to figure something out as opposed to something that is um, tidy. Like just like the way that he is choosing to have Marston um, deciding between these three like wells of water and then it goes in and out of it and comes up. And I don't know. I'm interested in what he's using that for and what that kind of image means to, to Kelly um, and whether it means anything to this idea of morality and like people's greed that they'll sacrifice and, um, their neighbors for, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I will say Jack, if you want to criticize this film for being uh, misogynist, I think you, you probably ought to point at one Richard Matheson on that one, because the original story involves the <laughs> husband outright rejecting, uh, the concept entirely and throwing the box in the trash and the wife uh, pulling it out of the trash and <laughs> pushing it without sure. I, I mean, honestly, the misogyny is inherited from the Bible. I mean, it, this is it's very. I think that's a very clear biblical reference because it's pointed out in the film that multiple wives. It's always the wife that pushes the button. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's Eve. You know, like so, the other guy. So my 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 accusations right. of misogyny are very much knowingly hedged in what Kelly is cribbing from. To be fair. Well, it is interesting uh, to think that in this looping cycle, the wife always chooses uh, her own death over the disfigurement of her children as well. So I, I don't know. I, I'd be interested to, to give it a more thorough read, but uh, that would involve watching more Richard Kelly, which I'm, I'm not really planning to do in the near future, even though, again, I did enjoy this, but it is very much in that vein of the puzzle box filmmaker. Like this thing, everything has to fit together just right. And it probably is most successful in building that puzzle box of, of any of his films uh, for better, for worse. It, it probably makes it the least rewatchable of the three for me. It is it, not a lot beneath the surface. I don't feel like I walked out of watching the box going, ah, uh, 
I need to figure out more about this. There's there's nothing left unanswered. It's a very taut film in many ways. And maybe it's coming off of Darko and Southland Tales, but that felt nice. <laughs> I was like, hey, uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm digging this. Yeah. So how would we all, ra- like, can we go, like, round the horn uh, ranking of, of the three? I mean, I guess you could throw in the different cuts if you watched them. Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, best to worst, I would say uh, Donnie Darko Theatrical, then Southland Can, then The Box, then I would go uh, Darko Director's Cut, and then Can Theatrical last. Yeah, I would I, I, I would vary that around. I, I debate on this. Certainly, I think Donnie Darko Theatrical is his best for me, the most complete. After that, I think either cut of Southland works. Honestly, I don't really have a clear preference because I think both of them, on honestly, even the shorter theatrical version benefits from its incomplete sensibilities. So honestly, I may actually prefer the theatrical, but the can plays better. Probably if you're gonna if you're gonna watch one, watch that one. And then after that, uh, I just think Johnny Darko director's cut is bad, but honestly, I think has more positive in it than the box for me. So I think the box will come in dead last on my on my count, which surprised me a little as I was sitting in there. But I was like, no, this is getting as much as I hate Donnie Darko's director's cut, and it really is a an incredible undercutting of a perfectly fine film. I think the box is uh is my last place finisher. Sean, what about you? I think I would do um yeah. I would I would do Southland Tales. I, I watched the can cut and very much loved it. Uh, and then I would do the box, which I liked, and then Donnie Darko, which I'm just kind of ambivalent about. Uh yeah, having not revisited Darko's uh, superior cut uh, by all accounts, um, that's dead last for me. Like I I had no enjoyment of the thing at all. Um, I would then have Southland Tales in second place. Uh, a very flawed, very strange, and very ambitious movie that I I did enjoy revisiting, and I think it it certainly is the film of his that merits the most reexamination, and and not to be reclaimed, but if there was a film that you could actually read into, that's that's probably the one for me. But I I did rank the box highest because I I think it's the most complete piece. All, all sure. different choices. Yeah. All right. Well, this is it's getting along in the tooth. Uh, everyone's fed up with hearing Jack yammer on. Uh, so <laughs> let's move it along, guys. I'm not. <laughs> Jack. <laughs> I'll just interrupt you there, Adam, for a little bit of a sidebar. No, go ahead. Jack, uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you the floor. You know, you, you were planning to take it anyway. But uh, what, what would you uh, be putting over this week? You know, this is a, a segment we've been asked to bring back by our generous patrons so uh i want to know what jack's been watching this week well you know i mean first you ask me for my opinions and then then you you don't like the opinions even though they're the correct sad but you know so be it Uh, i'm trying to remember what i've what i've what i have put over recently um so i think i'm just going to go back with um America to Me, which I know Sean is a fan of, which is a Steve James documentary series. It's on Stars in the US. Uh, I think it's on Amazon Prime. You can purchase it digitally in the UK and some, maybe some other territories. But a 10-part documentary series set in a Chicago school, high school. Um, 
incredible piece of documentary filmmaking, huge in its scope, mm-hmm. follows several students throughout an entire year in the school, uh, mostly black students. It's concerned with um, questions of race, but really starts to delve into questions of the U.S. education system, of what is the school system for, who does it represent, uh, really opens up all kinds of avenues of discussion. Um really phenomenal piece and i believe right now there's like some kind of a special option where you can like get stars for like five bucks for a month or you might even be able to get a free trial of it honestly get it watch this and then cancel it that's but but it's it's yeah it is worth it just for this documentary series america to me by steve james it's phenomenal well remember to cancel it because stars in general is uh, not worth your money uh, no, I think I think the difficult part with remembering it is that everything else on there is completely forgettable. But yeah, get rid of yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, Sean, how about you? Uh, besides seconding uh, Jack on that, I'm going to go with uh, a 1986 film by uh, John Irvin starring Arnold Schwarzenegger called Raw Deal. Um this was something that I watched recently and was kind of excited about, but I didn't really know. Uh, I, I, the the consensus on it is just kind of mute, um, and it turned out to be pretty fascinating um, movie. It's not as you know, it, it's not up there with like the the, the Arnie masterpieces, but it's um, well worth your time. He's uh, this undercover FBI guy, and um, uh, getting kind of pulled in, um, and there's a lot of violence in this movie and a lot of Arnie just like, there's like a five minute sequence where he's literally just like touching guns in a room, uh, in a suitcase. And it's fascinating. Um, it's, it's a, it's a weird, weird, uh, movie and it's, um, more people should watch it. Uh, I don't know. Have you guys, you guys have usually seen more Arnie than me, but it, is this something already on your guys' radar? Oh, I've seen it. I, I've i never never seen it. It, it. It's solid. I always confuse it with the Belushi one, but uh, it's it's the better of the I was going to say two, the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Red Heat or something? What's that one? Yeah, called? Red Heat is the Belushi one. Yeah, because they're, well, they're both, um, they're, they're like a year or two apart and they're both in Chicago. Right, yeah. Well. Uh, raw Deal, good. Red Heat, bad. But uh, yeah. That that's the take. <laughs> Red Heat is okay. Yeah, Red Heat still got the sauna scene. Every good Russian movie yeah. has a sauna scene. Uh too much Jim Belushi. Uh Jake, what do you got for us? What, what are you putting over? Yeah, I'm gonna take a step away from media and say that if you thought the films of R. Kelly were a mental workout, well, let me offer you a physical workout. Um, over a year ago, uh, before this pandemic even happened, I started to jump rope. Uh, as part of my uh, daily exercise, and I grew to love doing it, and uh, was sort of investigating what uh, what I should use to jump rope with, and I discovered this company called Cross Ropes, which make the best jump ropes I've ever used. Uh, you can get a lean set, which are lighter and move faster, or you can get these heavy weighted set to build your muscles, whatever you're in the mood for. I uh, have sets of both, and I love using them. I also just want to put over the act of uh, jumping rope. Uh, I think if we're locked in our homes, it's a fun activity that you can do uh, from within the comfort of your own home or just right outside your front door. You don't have to go to a gym. 
and and it works out several i think it's it's basically just the best full body workout you could get for a good deal um so yeah if you're looking to uh get fit quick i would put over jump roping and cross rope jump ropes make the best ropes in the market so just to get sort of like a sense of yeah of this, you said that these are the best ones that you've ever used. How many different brands have you used? Well, only <laughs> so the first rope I bought was like a ten dollar rope from uh, Amazon. Uh, it mm-hmm. had a lot of just reviews, and it uh, fell apart quick. Then I tried this other brand called Sonic Boom, which is more for like tricks and such. But I think just to Ooh. yeah, but to but for like actual like physical exertion on my body, the cross ropes have not let me down. So okay, so three, so three. three. I guess you could say yes. Ah, I have not tested. But don't go cheap. Is the is the big? The big That's thing. true. Yes, you are worth more than that. All right, all right. Jump rope. <laughs> that's uh, that's the put over of the week. I I watched a lot of Richard <laughs> Kelly films and and not a lot else. So uh, I I choose to abstain as host. I, I will say, Steve and I have been putting in. Big time yeoman's work with uh, caustic content. We have two straight episodes where we watched uh, what we would consider the worst pairing uh, we've ever we've ever encountered uh, twice in a row. So uh, horrible times. Uh, Jack was saying that film doesn't have uh, a morality to it. I, I might challenge him to check out those two episodes and reconsider that stance. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, our regular listeners, uh, pop over there, give us a listen. Uh, it, it's been unpleasant. You know, we could use the, the boost, but beyond that, uh, we do ask you guys for a couple of favors. If you have the time gumption, uh, we have an iTunes that, they, you know, they have this algorithm. They lock us into a box, if you will. Um, what we need is for our <laughs> listeners to go over and Take just a minute, give us a five-star rating, and if you got a couple extra seconds, maybe type in a sentence or two, uh, give us a written review. It's going to help our visibility, it's going to get more eyes on us, and that, boy, it's just going to help uh, move things along. We'll, we'll be able to make more, better content. Uh, speaking of helping us make more and better content, if you're feeling extra generous, we do also have a Patreon, it's a Patreon-supportive podcast. Uh, people like Dustin and Paula really help us keep the lights on. Uh, even for just $3 a month, you'll get our entire back catalog of written content, uh, a lot of podcasts we've discontinued in the past, and some new stuff that we're working on. Now, Sean and I are going through some of these uh, Bloomhouse Into the Dark films, and uh, those are going to release... Uh, we've decided to kind of coincide them with your respective holidays, because it's a holiday-themed show. Uh, yeah, check that out. It's patreon.com at Optimism Vaccine. I think that, that about wraps it up, guys. Uh, this has been a, a fascinating look at one Richard Kelly. Uh, Jake, the last word is as always yours. I'm a simp, and simps don't commit suicide. All right. That's what we got in with the lingo of today. Simp. Simp. <laughs>